بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيه كما يحب ربنا ويرضى والصلاة والسلام الأتمان الأكملان المتلازمان على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله We have now reached module 7 and module 7 is titled Family Law in Arabic we call that Fiqhul Usra Family Law and we want to look at what is Fardain knowledge, individually obligatory knowledge concerning family matters. So that encompasses a lot of different issues and not just marriage, but we talk about marriage first and foremost. But I have some surprises here for you, hidden inside of these slides. <coughs> so far, if we go back to the very beginning, when we started this series covering the Fardain knowledge, we talked about Aqidah, Aqidah 101. What we are required to know and believe in as Muslims. And we spent a good amount of time covering basic Aqidah 101, our theology. After that, in module 2, we talked about the transmission of Islam how Islam has reached us today. How do we understand authority? And how do we understand the role of the legal schools and things like that? After module two, we went into module three, which began our journey into fiqh or law, or the laws governing ibadat or ritual worship. So that encompasses purification, tahara, prayer, fasting, and zakat. So we've covered all of that ground, alhamdulillah. We have covered our basic aqidah, and we've covered purification, prayer, fasting, and zakat. And these are all, outside of the aqidah, this is all ritual worship, ibadat, things that we do on a regular basis either daily or yearly. What's missing from this list that we haven't covered? Hajj. Very good. Hajj. So what about Hajj? Are we going to cover the fiqh of Hajj and how to carry out the rights of Hajj? Is that Fardain knowledge? Is it obligatory for every single Muslim at the age of accountability to know the ins and outs of the manasik and how to perform the hajj? No. The answer is no. It's not individually obligatory on every single Muslim to know exactly how to carry out the rites of hajj. But there does come a time when it will be or may be obligatory on them to know those things. Because of that, we're not going to cover all of the details concerning the rights of Hajj because it isn't subsumed under Fardain knowledge in a general sense. It's specific to people who fulfill certain conditions. So the scholars say that concerning Hajj, what is Fardain for us to know are the conditions that make it obligatory on us. So that if we know those things, we know whether or not those conditions have been fulfilled and whether or not it's obligatory on us. If you don't know those conditions, maybe it's been obligatory on you for a very long time and you're ignorant of it. So you have to know the conditions for the obligation of Hajj. So you only have to know it when it will become fard on you and you don't have to know the details of how to perform it uh, before then. Uh, so after Hajj, <coughs> once it becomes obligatory, then you have to set about learning how to carry it out. And that could be sitting with a teacher, taking a course, and so on. So when is Hajj obligatory? This is the Fardain thing we have to know about before we get to the fiqh of family matters. So I'm going to give you two presentations here. 
One is coming from the Madiki perspective, that of Imam Madik and his students, and the other of Imam Abu Hanifa and his students. So, in the Maliki school, we say that when a person is a Muslim and at the age of maturity, meaning puberty and beyond, and sane, aqil, the only condition is istita'a, ability, the capacity or the ability to carry out the hajj. And that prerequisite, that istita'a, the istita'a or ability entails three things or it, there's three conditions for having the ability to perform hajj. Number one is aman, security, safety, which basically means that you are safe from point A, your home or wherever you're leaving from, to Mecca, to the Haram, and you are safe in that route and the dependents you leave behind are safe in your absence. So that's condition number one, safety. And that was definitely a concern in the pre-modern period when you had transport by foot and by animal or by boat, and it was quite an arduous journey. It wasn't always safe. That's less a concern today. The second condition is the Zad. And the Zad refers to the sustenance that will deliver one to Mecca for the rites. And for us, that would mean that we have enough savings left behind for our family while we're gone to pay grocery bills and the rent and mortgage and gas. And we have enough to afford those astronomical fees for going for Hajj, right? And during your time there and to get back. So the Zad is basically the financial ability to pay for your trip there and back and the money needed to look after for your family to be looked after while you're gone. The third condition is siha or health, which is basically the, the physical ability to travel. You could be sick or you could be uh, somewhat encumbered, but if you have the ability to travel and carry out the rights physically, then you meet that category, you meet that condition. So if you're a Muslim and you're past the age of puberty, and you're saying all you need is ability, which means there's safety, you can afford it, and there's nothing, there's no debilitating condition that prevents you from going. That's in the Madiki school. But it doesn't answer the question of when it's uh, ob obligatory exactly, or is there a cutoff period. In the Madiki school, if you fulfill these preconditions, like let's say the person they are they're a Muslim, they're an adult, they are sane, they have enough money for their family and to pay for the Hajj, their safety, they're physically able to do the rights, everything's in place. At what point is it sinful for them to delay the Hajj? Does that mean they have to go straight away as soon as they have the ability? Or can, or can they put it off for some time? Now in the Madiki school, we say that the obligation of Hajj, for the one who has these conditions, it is a, an obligation we call wajib muwassa'ah. It is an obligation that's somewhat expansive. You have some room, some wiggle room. It doesn't have to be immediately this year. It could be next year. It could be three years down the road, provided these conditions are there. The question is, is there a cutoff period? And the answer is yes. In the Madiki school, at least, the cutoff period is 60. If a person has all of these conditions in place and they continue to delay it year after year, once they get to 60 years of age, now the delay of Hajj is sinful. Now it's haram. If they delayed in their 40s and 50s, it's not advisable, but it's not technically haram. But once they reach the age of 60 and they're still delaying it when they have the ability and fulfill the conditions, now this is haram. And the basis for this is the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he says that the majority age of my ummah will be from 60 to 70. Meaning the average age of the individual from the ummah is going to be between 60 and 70, give or take. Some less, some more, but that's the median average, the median age at which a person passes away. So if you're delaying it to, the, to that period, you're really pushing it to the end and this, this is not advisable.
Likewise, if they say that if you have certainty that the ability will be cut short, like you're going to lose one of those conditions, then it's sinful to delay the Hajj. Like if you know that you have the conditions in place, but they're not going to be there forever, but within five years, you're probably going to lose that money, for instance. To delay it past those five years to the point where you lose that money and the ability, that would be sinful too. So this is just to clarify at what point it becomes obligatory. <coughs> now in the Hanafi school, it's a little bit different. They say it's obligatory for a person to perform Hajj al fawr you know, as soon as they are able to, once those conditions are met. They say it, you have to do it as soon as you can meet those conditions. If it's obligatory on the one who's Muslim, legally responsible and able, at the time when the people of his locality leave for Hajj, uh, to afford provisions and transportation for the journey and other expenses for going and returning in excess of one's expenses for one's dependents until his return. Basically, if you have all the money in place to go and you leave with the people, you have that ability. Once you have all that in place, you should go as soon as possible. Now, the requirements of that on an individual level in the Hanafi school, they, they, it's a little different. They say that the person has to have a sound, healthy body, free of disease or any condition that would impede their ability to travel. They likewise must not have anything that's preventing them from journeying to Mecca. There's no physical barrier. That's not really relevant today. But in that time, you understand cities were walled compounds. And sometimes passing from point A to point B might not have been so easy because of these barriers. So that's because it's, it's a, a medieval text talking about these conditions. Uh, likewise, uh, Amen, safety in one's passage going there. So again, that's not so much an issue anymore. And lastly, for a woman to not be on her idda, waiting period, and to be accompanied by her husband or unmarriageable male relative, mahram. If the woman cannot find the mahram, then there's no obligation on her. That's it. If she does not have a mahram to go with her, then it's not wajib on her to make hajj. Once she, she has the mahram in place and the other conditions, she goes. So that's really it. I wanted to clear that so that we, we have covered hajj, but not the details of how to do it, but knowing when it's obligatory. And many of you have made hajj, alhamdulillah. May Allah accept from all of you your hajj. And those of you who have it, may Allah facilitate that for you uh, and, and make it an acceptable hajj. Ameen. So now we come to the actual content of Module 7, which is about family law. Family law encompasses a number of things. We have marriage, divorce, we have a discussion on the rights of children and the rights of parents and family ties, and there's many other issues that we won't even get to. But these are the core issues we want to discuss in family law. Now there's a few of you who are not married, but it looks like the, most, the majority of you are married here. Does this Fard'ain knowledge apply to you? You could say, why should I learn this? I'm already married. The answer is it applies to you if you have children, because your children are going to get married inshallah. So you need to know some of the basic building blocks to a sound marriage and what, is what one must know because you need to help your children navigate the process. And by knowing the ins and outs, what you should know, you help them avoid a lot of headache, confusion, and even possible haram. So it's important for everyone to know these things. <coughs> now, there's this uh, meme that many people share. It's a meme template. You see the iceberg, right? If you look at the iceberg, from the surface, you see it, it may look large, but what is beneath the surface, the surface is much, much larger. And that's a, that's a meme that people use. And it, it seemed very appropriate to use in this class. Because we're talking about the fiqh of marriage, and that means that we have to narrow down the topics 
So I wanted to talk about what we're going to learn and also what we're not going to discuss. So you come with certain expectations. We want to talk about the conditions of marriage, the impediments that would block, prevent a marriage. We want to talk about the marriage contract, proposals, the mahar, the, the dowry, the rights and responsibilities towards both the husband and the wife and vice versa. We just want to talk about the core Fard Ain knowledge concerning these matters. What we are not going to discuss in this module, but is worthy of discussion in another venue, are things like how to find the right husband or wife, how to vet, spouse vetting, looking for red flags for a potential wife or a potential husband, uh, getting to know the potential spouse, how one may do that outside of an arranged marriage, gender dynamics, hypergamy, conflict resolution, the causes of marital discord, marital counseling, romance, honeymoons, strengthening marital bonds, love and flowers, and the dreaded in-law issues. These things are worth talking about, but not in Fard Ain Module 7. So we're not going to talk about any of those. The only thing in that the bottom part of the image we may talk about a little bit is the conflict resolution, because that does form part of Fard Ain knowledge, which is in the area of dealing with nushuz. Nushuz is uh, rebellion or recalcitrance or discord between husband and wife. There's certain things we have to know. But beyond that, we're not going into marital counseling, uh, none of that. All right, so <coughs> as you know, I always like to do, I like to talk about foundations. Because with the foundations, you understand the things that derive from them much better than just learning those things uh, in an, on an individual level, one by one. And we want to start with a legal maxim, a qa'ida fiqhiyya. A legal maxim is basically a legal rule of thumb that helps the faqih, the jurist, to understand many different issues that may be subsumed under it. And this is a very important legal maxim that everyday Muslims should know too. And that is, al-aslu fil al-ibaha. The default of things is permissibility. Right? So, Brother Amr, you're wearing a blue jacket. How do you know that blue jacket is halal for you to wear? Okay, it covers the aura, but it's a blue jacket. How do you know that a specifically blue jacket is halal for you to wear and not just a black jacket? Right. Okay. Uh, where is Sister Kokab? Did you pick the, the yellow tablecloth color? No. Okay. Who did? One of the sisters. Okay. How do we know that that's a permissible color to use? Yeah, right. <coughs> you know, some people think that Muslims, for, for Muslims, everything is haram, except for this, 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 and this. So the, the, they think that the asl is that everything is haram, except a few exceptions. A lot of young people think this. But the answer is that the asl, the default, is that everything is halal from the worldly matters. And what is haram are exceptions to that general rule. Right? You have to know the ruling in, in the Sharia for what you're doing. So you have to know that this color is not a haram color. But the default is that these things are permissible. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, It is He who created for you everything in the earth for your disposal, for your use. That's the default. Likewise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in Surah Al-A'raf, as you see in the slide, 
قُلْ مَنْ حَرَّمَ زِينَةَ اللَّهِ الَّتِي أَخْرَجَ لِعِبَادِهِ وَالطَّيِّبَاتِ مِنَ الرِّزْقِ Who may prohibit the adornment of Allah that he brought forth for his servants and the wholesome provision? So the asal, the default, is that these things are halal. They are mubah, they're neutral. If you want to wear a blue jacket, fine. If you want to wear a purple jacket, fine. If you want to wear a black jacket, fine. If you want to wear a red jacket, there is some discussion about the use of red, right? But that's another conversation. Usually the, the, the strongest view is that that is referring to a specific kind of red that's unmixed with other colors that resembles the uh, specific color of the saffron robes worn by Buddhists. It's not really red, like we will call it. Anyhow, so that's a specific exception, but the default is that these things are permissible. So, that's the general principle. Are there any exceptions to this principle? Yes, there is an exception to this principle. Um, before I get to that exception, I want to give you one more uh, uh, example. You go to the supermarket and you see 50 different vegetables and 20 different fruits. What is the default about all of those fruits? Yeah. You can take any of them and all of them. They're all halal, right? Assuming you're purchasing them with halal money, they're all halal. halal. In themselves, they're halal. They're mubah for you to eat. So the question is, is there any exception to this legal maxim? And the answer is, of course, yes, there is an exception. And that exception ties into module 7. So the exception is legal maxim too. In the poem, uh, Sheikh Abdul Rahman al-Sa'adi mentions in his poem on legal maxims, وَالْأَصْلُ فِي الْأَبْضَاعِ وَالْلُحُومِ وَالنَّفْسِ وَالْأَمْوَادِ لِلْمَعْصُومِ تَحْرِيمُهَا حَتَّى يَجِيءَ الْحِلُّ فَفْهَمَ هَدَاكُ اللَّهُ مَا يُمَلُّ The default rule concerning meat and sex and lives, human lives, and wealth of those the law respects is prohibition till they're proved to be lawful. So may Allah guide you and me. So basically the default is that everything in the world that we can partake of is halal to partake of, except for meat, except for the property and lives of other people. You just can't randomly kill people and sexual intercourse. The default for all of these is that they are haram. So whereas the default for everything is mubah, the exceptions are these where the default is that they are haram. That means that <coughs> if you're in a place and there's meat and uh, it, it, you're not in a Muslim country where the default is that people are Muslim and like, like here, you're here and you see meat, just a, a random slab of meat. You don't know where it comes from, who killed it, or if someone even killed it. What is the default assumption you should have? That it's haram. It's not like the vegetables and the fruits you see. You go out, you see some random fruits and vegetables. The default is that those are halal. But when you see the meat, absent any proof that it's uh, killed in a halal manner, the default is that it is haram until there's proof that it's halal. The same thing goes for the wealth of other people, right? The default is that it is haram to take their wealth unless you acquire it through some halal means, whether it is trade, commerce, or they gift it to you, right? Or you inherit it. But the default is that it's haram. And likewise with sexual intercourse. The default is that it is haram. Unless it is rendered halal. Unless it is rendered halal. How is it rendered halal? Through the act of marriage. Nikah. Nikah is what renders it halal. Right? In our context, we're talking about nikah. And this principle ties into nikah. And why we have to pay attention to the principles and laws regarding nikah so that we ensure that everything is halal because the default of those of sexual relationships is that they are haram until rendered halal, right? 
and hence the importance of knowing the fiqh of nikah. So, <coughs> what is nikah? Right? Linguistically, we, we know that we always talk about what words mean in the Arabic language and then what they mean in the language of the fuqaha, the jurist, the technical meaning. Linguistically, nikah quite literally means sexual cohabitation. That's what it means. Plain and simple. You may hear the word nikah and you think uh, uh, flowers and proposal and acceptance and exchange of rings and nice food. And you're thinking all these things associated with marriage as the witnessing of a contract and the celebration. But nikah in its root Arabic meaning it is sexual cohabitation. That's it. And we see this in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَإِن طَلَّقَهَا فَلَا تَحِلُّ لَهُ مِن بَعْدُ حَتَّى تَنْكِحَ زَوْجًا غَيْرًا But if a man divorces his wife a third time, she is not halal for him until she has cohabited with another husband. This is important because if she just gets married to another husband, but it's never consummated, it takes a different ruling. This is talking specifically about a marriage that is consummated through sexual intercourse. And that uses, this uses the phrase, حَتَّى تَنْكِحَ زَوْجًا غَيْرَ حَتَّى تُجَامِعَ زَوْجًا غَيْرَهَ Right? So this literally means intercourse. As a legal term, we get very specific. As a legal shar'i term, the definition of nikah is a contract, an aqd, a contract, legalizing, making halal, reciprocal gratification, reciprocal, mutual gratification, istimta'a or muta'a, between a man and a woman who are not prevented from the union of marriage due to any legal impediment, any mani' shar'i. So the you know, definitions are very, they're very terse, they're very tightly packed because that's what scholars do. They put everything there so that there's absolute clarity and they keep anything out that's not from it. So let's just unpack this definition because it's important for us to understand. This is one of many definitions and they all have the same meaning. So it is an aqad, it's a contract. Now that contract means that there is a proposal and an acceptance. Well, it's verbal or written down, either way. It is a contract where there is a proposal and an acceptance. So both parties are involved, one in proposing, one in accepting, according to whatever terms both sides or either side dictates. And this contract legalizes reciprocal gratification. Why didn't they say legalizes sexual intercourse? It does, but why do they say it a little bit differently? Why do they say reciprocal gratification? It's because it's not just the uh, act of intercourse that it legalizes. It also legalizes other forms of enjoyment, of sensual enjoyment between the spouses, right? Uh, beyond intercourse. And it's between a man and a woman. Obviously. So that excludes same-sex marriage. So in the very definition of marriage in Sharia, that's not going to be permitted ever. This is not going to happen, right? So it has to be male to female. <coughs> and the last part of the definition is who are not prevented from union due to a legal impediment. So there's a contract that legalizes these things between a man and a woman and the two who are conducting this contract do not or they are not prevented from the contract due to any mani' shar'i, any legal impediment, anything that would prevent that marriage from being uh, sound anything that would impede the marriage. What are these things? What are the mawani'? There are several. We'll touch on them later, but 
the basic ones are here. So you have several categories of people. So you have some categories that are permanently prohibited. It's just, it's never going to happen. So the, those relatives that are close enough to where they are always going to be unmarriageable kin, right? Mothers, siblings, aunts, and so on, or uncles, fathers, brothers, and so on. But then you have those that are temporary. You have preventatives that are temporary. So a woman whose uh, husband divorced her, and she's an idda, during that idda period, can another man propose to her and get married to her? No. But is that forever? It's temporary. Once the idda is finished, he may then propose and get married to her. So that's a temporary impediment to the marriage. Then you have other impediments, such as a non-Muslim man marrying a Muslim woman. That's forever. That's forever, unless he becomes a Muslim. Then you have a non-Kitabi woman, a woman who's not a Jew or a Christian, marrying a Muslim man. That's forever prohibited. That's a mani'ah. It's a, an impediment. And lastly, zawaj muta'a or temporary marriage. Now, zawaj muta'a used to exist in the time, in the early days of Islam, and it was abrogated and prohibited. But that uh, stands as a prohibited form of, of marriage arrangement. The temporary marriage where both parties enter into the contract with an understanding that it's temporary and they agree to terminate it at a certain period of time. That's prohibited. So basically, it's a contract between two people, a man and a woman, for the purpose of legalizing reciprocal uh, gratification. And there's nothing preventing that marriage from being valid in the eyes of the Sharia. So you can see how something so tightly packed has so many meanings within it, right? And there's consequences to each of these. Now, <coughs> go ahead. D. So a woman who is neither a Muslim, nor a Christian, nor a Jew. Let's say a Hindu woman. Can a Hindu woman marry a Muslim man? No. no. Can a Christian woman or a Jewish woman marry a Muslim man? There are conditions for this. But yes, generally speaking, yes. Applying that in today's environment that's a different conversation. We discussed this in some detail in one of the Ask the Imam sessions. I don't know which one it was, uh, but there's some details to this. The Quran permits it in general, but there are other conditions that apply that would disqualify a lot of Jewish and Christian women from marrying Muslim men, especially in today's time, right? Uh, and maybe we'll touch on that in some more detail when we get to that. Now, <coughs> I, I was going to introduce a little bit about marriage, but maybe I'll just go through this rather quickly. We talked about it before. The basis of marriage is something established in Jannah, and it endured in this dunya, and it endures in Jannah after we die and are resurrected. So it's an institution that will be with us. It has been with us since the time of Adam السلام, and his wife Hawa, and it endures with us in this dunya, and it continues to endure in the gardens of paradise between the believers. So it is a union that is not limited to this world. It endures. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes marriage as one of the signs in creation. And the signs point to things greater than themselves, right? A sign an alama or an ayah ma yushiru ila ghayrihi what points to other than itself so it's pointing to the creative power and mercy of Allah that he has created these instincts and this attraction between males and females and joined them in the union of marriage for certain objectives that help them in this life and into the hereafter and these are from the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah mentions in several places in the Qur'an. Now, <coughs> the question we want to get to is, 
what is the hukum on getting married? Okay, so some okay, some say sunnah, some say wajib. Oh, good point. See, he mentioned the point that the fuqaha talk about. Uh, he mentions the verse, "Fankihu ma taba lakum min nisa And this is in Arabic a command verb, right? Wal amr wujub, right? The command points to obligation. Does that mean that it's obligatory? Well, you do have a very small minority of scholars in our history who did say it is wajib. But it's a very, very small minority. The absolute overwhelming majority say it is between being mandub or recommended or sunnah mu'akkada, a highly emphasized sunnah. And they say that this verse, although it uses a command, not every command in the Qur'an is for obligation, right? Sometimes the command is for ibaha, it's for permitting, right? فَكُلُوا وَشْرَبُوا right? So not every command is for obligation, especially when you have other evidences pointing to it being uh, recommended and not obligatory. So the default is that it's recommended, or it's a highly emphasized sunnah for those who fulfill the conditions. But there's some detail here. And we want to look at each of these five categories because there are certain people for whom it is obligatory. So this is also another issue. <coughs> is not understood as an obligation, it's understood uh, as a recommendation, and the person turning away from it in the sense of seeking uh, ta'abud or piety, even though it's uh, something available to them, right? So there are some people for whom marriage is wajib, they have to get married, it's obligatory on them. For others, it's haram for them to get married, too bad for them. For others, it's recommended. For others, it's neutral. Go either way. And for others, it is disliked. It's makru. So who are these and where do we fit? Well, if you're married, you're married. But let's say there's people in your life who may fit one of these five categories. Now the default, we said, is that it's recommended. That's the default. And, but this default ruling is applied to people who meet certain criteria. It's not just everybody, right? The fuqaha mentioned that this is the person who is mu'tadil al-mizaj. They have a balanced temperament. What does that mean? A balanced temperament here is, if, if we're speaking openly, it means that their natural sexual desires are pretty normal for their age. They're not excessive, nor are they nearly asexual without desires. They're just in the middle, like most people. And that person desires marriage. They feel a longing to get married. And at the same time, they are able to restrain themselves sexually. I'faf. They're able to stay away from zina, fornication. And they're not afraid of falling into fornication. So if a person meets all of these criteria, they are of a balanced temperament, and they want to get married, they desire it, but at the same time, they can restrain themselves and stay away from zina, and they're not worried about falling into it. For that person, it is recommended. The Hanafi school, they say, sunnah mu'akkada, it's a highly emphasized sunnah, meaning that if they're capable and they leave it, they would be sinful, right? This is very technical because you can see cases where people are lacking one of these criteria, which changes the ruling of marriage for them. Some people have to get married, such as a person who desires to get married 
and they are legitimately afraid of falling into zina. And if they fast, the recommended fast of the Prophet he says, whoever among you is able uh, to get married, then get married, and whoever is not, then let him fast. And they fast, but the fast is not uh, sufficiently weakening their shahwa. So they want to get married, they're legitimately afraid, fasting isn't helping, right? Then this person, it will be obligatory for them. They have to get married. And here's something so critically important to understand. The fuqaha say, <coughs> say a person, say a young man, he is having a very difficult time controlling his desires. He wants to get married. He is legitimately afraid that if he doesn't get married, he's going to fall into zina. Right? The fuqaha say that if this person gets married, and the only way to get married and afford it is to use haram income, even then he would get married. Because earning haram income is an evil, and fornication is an evil, but zina is a greater evil than uh, earning haram income. Now we have to clarify this. There are some income, some forms that are worse than zina, such as usury. So that would be a qaid we have to mention here. That would not apply. But just say a person is working at a, a place that sells haram items, right? If they're earning haram money, uh, and that's the only way they have to get married, and if they don't do that, they're falling into zina, the fuqaha say this person does what they have to do. However, if they're going to do that, they have to tell the wife before they get married. They have to tell them of this predicament. Now, how does that look on the ground in everyday situations? You know, we find a solution for these people, inshallah. But this just shows you how important it is to know when it may be obligatory for people or not for other people. <coughs> now, hopefully that never happens. Hopefully if a person finds themselves in that situation, they will find a halal income and the marriage will be facilitated. But the fact that this is mentioned by the fuqaha shows you how important it is to facilitate marriage and not as many parents do, and I'm looking at parents out here, moving the goalpost, moving the goalpost to marriage. Okay, you have to graduate and then you have to go to university. Okay, are you ready to get married now? No, now you have to go get a job. Okay, I got a job, can I get married now? No, you need to get settled in your career path get settled into your work and be stable and then we'll get you married so the, the goalposts keep moving and God knows what the child is doing in university or outside of university while they're waiting for the parents to finally say yes this is facade this is corruption so I'm going to touch on some issues below that iceberg but anyhow uh, next category for whom is it haram to get married they say that if a person desires marriage, but they're not afraid of falling into zina, and if they get married, it's clear that they're going to bring harm to their wife, then it will be haram. So, but what is harm here? Harm is not left for anyone to define according to their desires and their subjective whims. Harm is clearly defined as his inability to pay the mahr, this is considered a form of idrar biha, or his inability to provide her the bare minimum of financial maintenance, of nafaqa, and she doesn't know about it before the marriage. Because if she knows about it and is okay with it, she has that right to accept that. But this is, if he doesn't have enough money to take care of his wife, and he keeps it from her. She doesn't know about it. It will be haram for him to get married. And or he, ha he, he has an inability to sexually gratify her. 
and she doesn't know about this before the marriage. Or the inability to provide financial maintenance except from the haram. If he desires to get married and is not afraid of falling into zina, but if he gets married, these things would happen. One of them is haram for him to get married because he's not afraid of falling into zina. So it's not a question of taking the lesser of two evils here. If he chooses to stay single, he remains in the halal because he doesn't, he's not afraid of falling into zina. But if he gets married under these circumstances, one of these things are going to happen, landing him in the haram. For this person, it's haram to get married until he addresses all of these issues and they're no longer a question. Does that make sense? So he has to be able to pay the dowry, he has to be able to take care of her financially, or she knows about his financial situation being less than stellar and she's fine with it. He has to be able to sexually gratify her, or she knows that he doesn't have that ability, but she's okay with it. I don't know who would be okay with that, but if she's okay with it, it's her right. And he has the ability to provide from halal earnings. These conditions have to be there. Otherwise, it's haram for him because he's not afraid of falling into zina. If he's afraid of falling into zina legitimately, then we look at these things differently. We go back to the previous slide where it could be obligatory, but again, there's a question of how that applies in real life and day-to-day -day life. We look for ways out. There are some people who, for whom it's neutral, it's mubah, whether they stay single or get married, it's all the same. And this would be the person who is, I guess you would call them asexual, they don't have desire, they don't have sexual desire. And they don't expect to have offspring, either they're infertile or they have erectile dysfunction or they're elderly and they don't expect to have children. This person, if they want to get married, they can get married. If they want to stay single, they can stay single. If they decide to get married, however, they're going to have to inform their potential spouse about their issues. If they have erectile dysfunction uh, or anything that would prevent sexual intercourse. Now, if they're just infertile, this is where the fuqaha differ. Because infertility is not an aib, it's not a physical defect, right? So some of the fuqaha say, because it's not a physical defect, the person is not obliged to tell his potential spouse about it. Other fuqaha say, no, it is considered something like a defect, and because it is one of the objectives of marriage to have children, he must inform her of any uh, issues with being infertile. So for this person, assuming they have these conditions, to get married or stay single, it's neutral. And if they want to get married, they have to make sure that there's clarity about their condition, if they have any. <coughs> for whom is it makru? Is makru for the one who does not really desire to get married and doesn't want to have children, and they're afraid that if they get married, it will prevent them from recommended acts of worship. So let's, let's suppose this is a person who has filled their time with lots of charitable work. They do a lot of voluntary work in the community. They, they, they teach the Qur'an as well. They do lots of nawafil and ibadah. And they don't desire to get married. They don't want children. They're not struggling with anything, uh, any sexual desire. And if they get married, they're afraid that that marriage and all the responsibilities it entails will disrupt those recommended things they're doing. The fuqaha say for this person it would be makru. So these conditions apply equally between males and females. It's not just for males. But you see obviously that for, the most, for most of us, marriage is going to be recommended or sunnah mu'akkada, a highly emphasized sunnah according to the Hanafis, provided these conditions are met. So what's next? I've introduced to you the topic of family law and marriage in general. We defined marriage and we looked at the, uh, some of the impediments 
And then we looked at the legal ruling on marriage. What comes next? When we talk about the fiqh of, of marriage, we want to begin with the proposal process. How does the person propose to the uh, potential spouse or to her father in the matter of marriage? How is it done? What are the etiquettes? What's the proper way? What's the improper way? And then we look at the, the aqad itself, the marriage contract, the conditions of that contract, the arkan, the pillars of that contract, what makes it sound, what makes it unsound, uh, adding stipulations in the contract. You know, for example, can a woman stipulate uh, if we get divorced, I, I get uh, half of everything you own? Or if you marry a second wife, then we're divorced automatically. You know, can she stipulate these things? And can he stipulate other things? We then talk about the conditions of a sound marriage, the wali, the guardian. Who is he? Who can he appoint on his behalf? We talk about the mahar, the dowry, the witnesses, the conditions for the husband and the wife, and we talk about kafa'a or suitability, and uh, to what extent is suitability a condition for determining who is suitable to marry this one or that one. And then we talk about what happens after the marriage, the rights and the responsibilities both of the husband and the wife, and then we talk about the issue of nushuz or marital discord, its parameters and how it is to be resolved. All of this, inshallah, constitutes fard ayn knowledge because these are common uh, things that happen to us as Muslims. We all want to get married uh, or we want to preserve our marriages uh, or resolve issues that arise in the marriage. And we want to fulfill the rights owed to our spouse and also ensure that our rights are, are given to us. So it's not just about what is owed to us, it's what we owe others, but it's important to know both on what's on both sides. So we'll talk about these uh, starting next week, bi-ithnillahi ta'ala. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Yes. Uh, it's not just that. We'll go back to that slide. It's one who they don't desire marriage. It's they don't have sexual desire. And neither do they want kids. And they're doing things that are recommended. And they're afraid that if they get married, the marriage responsibilities will disrupt them from those things. All of these things, right? If they just don't want kids, but they want to get married... This is a conversation that has to be had between the husband and the wife because it is the haq of the husband to want to have children. And the, the woman can't say, I agree to marry you, but I don't want to have children if he wants to have children. If, if, if she refuses to that, then he shouldn't go through with that marriage, right? Or she just relents, right? Yes. Yeah, you know, this is what is what we learn in the books of fiqh. And you do get the sense that they're uh, writing this in an agrarian society where the basic building blocks of civilization were both intact and preserved by family units and society in general, right? Everything was supporting morality around them. So it's a really good question. Can anyone living in today's time, in, in the, age of, the age of Tinder and hookups, you know, can anyone say, I feel safe from Zina? Young man, 20 years old, he's out of high school, he's living in a dorm, downtown studying. Can he say legitimately and truthfully, I feel safe from falling into Zina? I don't think anyone who's honest with themselves can say that. Because very few people can say that and be tested and pass that test. It's easy to say that if you are in an environment where you are preserved and protected from temptation, where there's gender segregation in a healthy way, where 
you're not called to the haram everywhere you look, where the haram is not as open, as accessible as this. I don't think anyone can say that. So does that mean that it becomes wajib for everyone? You know, it depends on their capacity to restrain their desires and be patient. But if a person legitimately feels that if I don't get married within this period of time, I'm going to succumb to temptation because it's all around me. The parents really need to facilitate that. It's very selfish of parents to look after their prestige and reputation in the community uh, by delaying the children's marriage to everything. All the ducks are lined up in a perfect row before they go through with the marriage of their child to another a person. Because what happens is they end up getting involved in all sorts of haram, all sorts of fahisha, and the children keep it from the parents, or something happens and they find out. And they will say, I wish that I had facilitated the marriage perhaps while they were in university, right? Maybe there could have been an arrangement where they are married, everything is halal, and they're still going through their education, and we work to make things easy for them so they stay in the halal, and they have the support of both families during that process. But you know, people are looking after other things. I'm getting into rant territory, so I'll stop now. But it's... We can't give a fatwa, a blanket fatwa, that it's just wajib on every person living today in this environment to get married, because everyone's different. But I could see the argument that it's wajib for more people than it is mustahab. Yeah. But how do you reconcile that when you say it's unlawful if they can provide for their spouse? Yeah, so this is going back to that person. They legitimately fear that if they don't get married, they're going to fall into zina. Hopefully this, this scenario never happens to anyone. But the fuqaha mentioned the scenario to highlight the importance of it. If a person is legitimately afraid they're going to fall into zina, and they say, I cannot afford the mahar, and I cannot afford to take care of my, my wife except by working at this place that sells haram. So I have a choice to make. I either earn haram income but get married and stay in the halal and not fornicate or I avoid haram income while fornicating. It's a really bad choice. Right? You're, this person's really in a rock and a hard place and we don't want anyone to be forced to make that choice. But it's kind of a hypothetical, a what if. If someone was forced to make that choice and it was true that they're going to fall into zina otherwise. They would choose to have the haram earnings over falling into zina without haram earnings. But it's hypothetical, and it shows you the severity of zina and the importance of facilitating marriage. Now, ideally, that doesn't ever happen because you don't want to feed your wife with the haram, right? And she should know about these things, and she has to know about them and agree to them and perhaps be in a similar situation to agree to it. Uh, and it's unlikely this ever happens. But the fact that it's mentioned in the books of fiqh as a hypothetical shows you how important it is to facilitate marriage for young people. It's not a game. We're not in a village where you can put off the marriage until they're 30 years old. I am a strong advocate of young marriage. Now, young people are not as mature as they used to be. So there's obviously a balance that has to be struck. But all things considered, if the person is young and they have some life experience and maturity that they have gained by their parents putting them in positions of responsibility and building them up, I am a strong advocate of, children, of young people marrying earlier rather than later. Because even if they marry later and you think that they were pure, they might not, they might not have been pure and they didn't tell you. Just be real, right? It happens. You know, there are the stuff that happens that is pushed under the rug that never reaches the surface, but which comes to people behind other, through closed channels would be shocking to you. So it's really something to think about.
as parents to encourage your children to develop themselves and take on uh, experiences that will mature them so that when they get married, if they get married younger, they're not getting married with a lot of immaturity, but a lot more experience. But, yes. Yeah. If they if they want to make that arrangement, yeah, that's fine. As long as everything is uh, clear and transparent in the process between the spouse, the contract between the, the the two spouses, then if that wants, if they want to facilitate that, absolutely. Yeah, transparency is always best because things change and people they need to know what they're getting into, right? Good. We'll probably talk more about this issue later on when we get to the issue of nafaqa, of uh, financial provision and arrangements, specifically the issue of arranging and facilitating that for young people, uh, novel ways of doing that while they're in university. That's really beyond the fardain, it's more looking in solu- at solutions for fardain problems, right? Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Point D, marrying the Ahlul Kitab. Uh, or I could refer you to the Ask the Imam session where I went into great detail or I said, I don't do them and I won't do them and I don't believe most of them are halal. Yeah, and I gave my reasoning. <laughs>